One of the best things about being a parent is watching the slow progression of your child's understanding of the world. Reading, history, geography, technology, math. Now, my son Jackson really struggled with numbers at first. Even basic counting and addition were tough. But in the last few months, it really clicked for him. Today, he's excited about math problems and would never, ever get tripped up by anything as simple as counting. He knows, for instance, that the number 200 always follows the number 199. <laughs> That's just logical. Of course, here at the Cinephiles, we take pride in taking something as straightforward as counting and making it complicated. You see, we have big plans for our 200th episode. It's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before on the Cinephiles. And our plan, of course, was to have that 200th episode come out right after number 199. However, you've all heard about the best laid plans of mice and men. Well, that applies to podcasts, too. And what we didn't expect was the opportunity to partner with Warner Brothers on their upcoming filmmaker series. Starting on September 15th, Warner Brothers will be exploring the lives and films of some of Hollywood's most influential directors, including Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Frank Darabont, and Clint Eastwood at youtube.com slash Warner Bros. online. So instead of giving you our special 200th episode this week, we are jumping ahead to number 201 for part one of Clint Eastwood's Million Dollar Baby. This incredible film starring Hilary Swank, Morgan Freeman, and of course, Clint Eastwood as the gruff, crusty boxing manager, Frankie Dunn, is a beautifully written, acted, photographed, and of course, deeply moving film. In fact, it's more than moving. Million Dollar Baby is truly heartbreaking, shattering even. So if you haven't seen this incredible film, take off those boxing gloves and type cinephiles.net into your search field so you can buy or stream Million Dollar Baby along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to John and I discuss the granddaddy of all movie lists, the AFI 100. So that's a discussion of the AFI 100 on Patreon and Million Dollar Baby Part 1 this Friday on the Cinephiles. And don't forget to tune into the Warner Brothers Filmmaker Series at youtube.com slash Online, where from September 15th through the 19th, they will be exploring the journeys of five of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And don't worry, that 200th episode is coming, just not in the order that you would normally expect. Thought you might be interested in training me. I don't train girls. Maybe you should. People see me fight, say I'm pretty tough. Girly, tough ain't enough. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on the Outlaw Nation, voiceover artist as well, and uh, excited co-host for The Cinephiles, especially for this film that we're going to talk about today, Steve. 
And we are doing something a little bit different, which is we've partnered with a little tiny studio called Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers is doing a, a famous filmmaker series from five nights starting on September 15th. They're going behind the scenes on five of their most important filmmakers, which includes Stanley Kubrick, Ridley Scott, Martin Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, and Frank Darabont. The Warner Brothers will feature its series, Hollywood's Most Influential Filmmakers, on YouTube starting se- uh, September 15th. You can go to youtube.com slash Warner Brothers Online, Warner Bros Online for more information. And what we were so excited about was it just seemed to fit with exactly the mission of the cinephiles, which is all we've been doing for the last four years is taking deep dives into the films and the filmmakers that created some of the greatest films in history. And it seems as if Warner Brothers is doing a similar exploration of their favorite filmmakers. Yeah, and they reached out to us and asked us if we'd be willing to promote and kind of support this uh, thing that they're doing. And we were excited to do it because... These are some of the filmmakers that we have covered here on The Cinephiles already, and you all know we're massive uh, lovers of classic films, of films that stand the test of time, and certainly all five of these directors, Kubrick, Ridley Scott, Scorsese, Eastwood, and Darabont, have done films that will stand the test of time, will eventually all, sorry, will eventually uh, end up in uh, the top 100, AFI top 100, whenever they do them again, I'm sure a number of films from all of these filmmakers will end up on that final list. So it's an exciting thing to be a part of, Steve, for sure. And after a little bit of back and forth with Warner Brothers, we came up with, we settled on the film that we wanted to explore in honor of their filmmaker series is Million Dollar Baby, 2004 from Clint Eastwood. And I got to tell you right off the bat, yeah, this movie absolutely destroyed me in a way that I really didn't, I was, I, I wept for like 25, 30 minutes of the film <laughs> and I was having to type because I'm always typing notes and I'm like typing and sobbing, which is not really a good way to do it. I mean, I, I had such a strong reaction, way more than I thought I would and I'm really excited to be exploring it today. Well, how long has it been since you've seen it, Steve? Since I saw it in the theater. Wow. So since then you've become a father. You've become, you know, you, you, you've gotten older, you've kind of had the things go on in your life. Uh, uh, people come into your life, people leave your life. So a lot has happened to you since. So when you watch this movie, I'm sure you felt like when the first time you watched it, you were closer to the fighter. Now you're the Clint Eastwood guy. Okay, you're closer totally. to the Clint Eastwood in your mind or closer to the Morgan Freeman ca- character in your mind. And I, and I absolutely agree with you, man. It's it's a film that I find very difficult to watch because it is, I put it in the one flew of the cuckoo's nest pile, which yes. is those films that have a tragic moment that absolutely decimates you because you've fallen in love with the protagonist of the film which in this case of course is played by Hilary Swank and what happens to her at the end of the or near the end of the film and what it leads to is just so goddamn heartbreaking and uh, it's tough to watch because we yeah. want this natural we have this natural inclination to cheer for our heroes in movies and want them to succeed and hit the mountaintop and change their lives and unfortunately this is someone who got to uh, who got to climb up to the top of the mountain and peer over the top of the mountain before they were knocked back down again, you know? I, I think the Cuckoo's Nest uh, comparison is a, such a good one because mm. the that movie, I, re- I rewatched it probably uh, for the first time in a while, maybe four or five years ago. Oh, and um, what surprised me so much is that movie's totally fun. Oh, yeah. It's really, really fun until it becomes absolutely horrible. Right. And and, and that And I think that's what kind of happened in this film particularly since you know i'm watching it i knew what was going to happen i know where we're going to go so i have this horrible sense of dread <laughs> and because i'd only seen it i saw it once in the theater absolutely mm-hmm. loved it and then haven't watched it since is 
I didn't know how far along it was going to be when we get to the huge turn. I didn't know yeah. if it was the halfway mark or five minutes before the end. I didn't really remember. So I had this dread yeah. throughout of like, please just have it be later. Let it be short. I don't want to go there because it's so yeah. rough. Yeah. Um, how did you first come to this film? I think just uh, like uh, everything else we've come to in, in here in L.A. that's anything post-2000. I think I just went uh, with a bunch of friends. Don't remember if it was Vogel. Don't remember if it was us. Uh, and uh, went to go see it. And I remember just absolutely enjoying the hell out of the movie and getting very emotional and angry when what happens to her happens to her at the end of the movie. And just that feeling has always stayed with me. And also uh, the feeling of Hilary Swank as this incredible actress. I mean, she had this like five to eight year run where she was just everyone talked about her. She'd won two Oscars. And then, of course, now recently she'll only occasionally pop up in things. And, and you know, you wonder what happened. And it's so I don't odd. think it's from any fault of her own. I think it's more casting directors not wanting her to put to not wanting to put her in certain projects or certain films but this you you forget how good she is till you watch her again and realize how good she is uh and it's a it's a joy to discover it. and this is eastwood before he becomes too old this is eastwood before it, it we seem to you know i interviewed him last year for uh for oh, that's uh, right. uh for that uh, richard jewell movie and it was a pleasure to be in his company a pleasure to talk to me he's a, such a gentleman he stood up and shook my hand after the interview which was uh, like a shock to me a very uh, much an honor to me wore a tie and a suit to do and so he's just but you can tell He's a little. Old, he's old now, and he drifts off sometimes in conversation and on tangents. And so they had to kind of keep him corralled in. But he's still an incredibly nice gentleman and uh, respectful gentleman. And it was an honor to interview him. But watching him in the movie, you forget that's the Eastwood you love. That gruff, oh, yeah. you know, uh, hard edged guy um, who has life lessons to teach you if you're willing to listen. Um, he is, I really think he, you know, we've, we've always talked about this contrast between the demanding, irrational, crazy, mm. over the top, angry directors like Kubrick and, you know, Ridley Scott and, you know, two other guys that are on this list. Yeah. And then we've contrasted them with the nice, warm, rational, reasonable directors like Ron Howard and Rob Reiner. And of course, Clint Eastwood is absolutely in that group. He might be, I think, the calmest director in, in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny. We, 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 the other film we've done by Clint Eastwood was Unforgiven, which he did about a year ago. And we had a huge, long uh, biography just really going into mm -hmm. his history. So if you want to know more about how this guy became the director that he became, I would say, first, go back and listen to our Unforgiven episode. And second, go to YouTube.com slash Warner Bros. online and enter into this director series and they will have they're also going to be exploring this fantastic director i want to give a little bit of pre-production which is this all starts with a short story uh written by fx tool mm -hmm. and fx tool is the pen name for jerry boyd and jerry boyd was a boxing trainer and a cut man for 50 years yeah and angelica houston read this short story and she called up her buddy al ruddy albert s ruddy the producer and she said al read this and if you don't cry at the end don't bother calling me back our friendship <laughs> is over <laughs> so so he read it he cried yeah he said he bought the rights immediately said this is going to be an amazing movie and it went into development hell nobody wanted it years and years and years he hires paul haggis to write the screenplay wow and Basically, they had a 
understanding that if they raised the money, that Paul Haggis would be directing this film. Oh, yeah. Now, it doesn't sound like there was anything in paper. It doesn't even sound like they made a handshake deal. It was sort of like, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, your experience with producers, but producers, good producers are very good at dangling something in front of oh, you yeah. without necessarily committing to it. Uh, Haggis writes a screenplay. Nobody wants it. They bring on a guy, uh, Tom Rosenberg, who's the kind of the financial side of the producer. And finally, he puts together a deal for a budget of six to seven million dollars. And Ruddy says, no, we can't make that movie for that. And the six to seven million dollars movie, that's probably the one that Paul Haggis could direct. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if the, he had said yes to that, then Paul Haggis would have directed Million Dollar Baby. But he says, no, I think this needs to be a bigger movie. I think this is an A-list Oscar kind of movie. Wow. And he's off at Sun Valley and runs into his old buddy, Clint Eastwood. They never worked together. They've known each other a long time. And suddenly he goes, Eastwood. And he hands him the script. And Clint reads the script and says, it's a great script, but it's a downer. I don't want to do it. Wow. And turns it down. Clint's wife finds the script on a, you know, a nightstand or something. She stays up all night cries all night Clint Eastwood is now in <laughs> I can't tell you how many stories we've had where it's been the wife read the script I think James Earl Jones did Field of Dreams because his wife read the script yeah. I think Paul Verhoeven did Robocop because the wife read the script there's like I, there's a whole bunch of stories mm. where the, the guy said no and his, the much smarter wife said no no you have to do this yeah because our wives are smarter than we are that's why <laughs> if you have any remote intelligence you pick a wife who's as smart as you are if not smarter so that you can constantly stay in, in, in uh, challenged by this person and so, no surprise at all. No surprise at all. I think this is sage advice from the outlaw, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. I never absolutely never think, marry yeah. someone dumber than you. That doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. Um, so, Al thinks, hey, I got Eastwood. He's an Academy Award winning director. He's a star for 50 years. Going to be no trouble raising that money. <laughs> nope. Nobody wants to do it. They go to every studio. Every studio turns it down. Clint has done a whole bunch of movies with Warner Brothers and goes to Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers goes... First of all, it's really depressing. We don't want to do it. Second of all, nobody wants to see a movie where it's just two old guys talking. Um, and third of all, and the biggest one, is it's about girl boxing. Mm, right. No one's interested. Right. No one at, wants to do it. At this time, and this is something I'm, – I'm glad you referenced this, Steve, because I meant to bring it up. At this time, people forget now because we've seen women MMA. We've seen women professional wrestling. We've seen women sports kind of explode with the, uh, the USA soccer team and WNBA and all of that. But people forget it. Uh, when women were first getting into boxing, it was a really big deal. You know, this is where you saw a lot of the misogyny, the sexism pop up. Oh, yeah. This idea that girls can't fight, this idea that it was turned into a joke. You saw Tanya Harding doing celebrity boxing, but there was Layla Ali. Mm -hmm. Of course, an Ali being a trailblazer in this situation. Layla Ali and a couple of other female boxers had really come into prominence and were at this time building a, a pop culture mainstream kind of uh, resume or kind of a le like, I don't know, just a connection with pop culture mainstream. And they started to be talked about. Uh, so when Eastwood is talking to Hillary Swank, and I know we'll get to it as we go through scene by scene through the movie, but that's, that's essentially the public saying that at 
at the time uh, that this movie was uh, being pitched or being talked about getting made, the public had not yet fully embraced the idea of female boxers. And, of course, now that seems like so... Uh, archaic, as you see, women MMA, Ronda Rousey being a massive star coming out of Regina Carano and the Mandalorian. That's an MMA champion, you know. So it was so funny how quickly that has turned. But it was like going back in time, Steve, to remembering it that when they used to say that about women's boxing. There's no question that it's turned, and there's no question that that we pay far more attention you know, to the WNBA or whatever it is that yeah, we yeah, did yeah. before. But still, and and this is the thing I was thinking about, is still, if you go like, well, how much press time, how much money, how oh, much sure. attention goes to this versus the male version? Sure. And we, is it a 20th, maybe? You I know? don't know. I'd have it's to do really analysis, sm- but that's and a this fair is, and I, point. You know, and I know we hit these things sometimes, but I just, I just came up with the best way to see this lack of diversity, this idea of inclusion. And so I just wanted to share it with, because suddenly it popped in my brain. The easiest way to see how sexist Hollywood has been traditionally is look at ensemble movies. Mm. You know, if you take a look at ensemble movies, they are almost always at least two to one male to female. And I'll take my oh, own yeah. film, The the Assistance, alone. The Assistance is a, an ensemble movie of six characters, four guys, two girls. Mm-hmm. You look at Cheers. You look at Seinfeld. Seinfeld's three guys, one girl. You look at The Avengers. You look at Ocean's Eleven. You look at, um, you know, MASH. You look at the uh, Justice League, Lord of the Rings, Guardians of the Galaxy, original Star Wars. You know, it's like over and over again, you see these ratios of, Two to one, three to one, four to one, or all guys. And yes, there are a few all-female ensemble movies, but very, very few comparatively, and tons of all-male ensemble movies. And so it's like right there, we have a great script, we have a fantastic director, and the studio looks at it and goes, it's cool boxing. Nobody wants to do it, you know? And that is the barrier that is is still being fought today. Uh, He goes to Hilary Swank, uh, Clint is really concerned. She's a great actress, but she's built like a stick. You know, can she put on the weight? Can she do the physicality? Um, he goes to Morgan Freeman, who obviously he's worked with before, and Morgan's free, and he says, "Enhance him the script." Doesn't tell him which part. And Morgan <laughs> Freeman says, "Look, I'll play either part—the black guy or the white guy." <laughs> Clint goes, "Well." What part would you rather play? He's like, well, I'd, I, I think I'd want to be Scraps. And Clint says, good, because I want to be the other guy. <laughs> Which I think is just so funny. And they are so good together. Yeah. They have such chemistry. Yeah. And finally, the deal ends up. Warner Brothers won't put up all the money. And uh, uh, Rosenberg, the guy who had re- come up with the original 6 to $7 million, his company, Lakeshore, is going to put up half the money. Warner Brothers puts up the other half. And finally, we have the $30 million budget that Clint wanted. The problem is someone's got to call up Paul Haggis and tell him he's not directing this movie. <laughs> so, and Clint calls Paul Haggis and the, and this is that story we heard over and over again where he picks the phone. This is Clint Eastwood. Come on. <laughs> Seriously. Who is this? Eastwood. It's Clint, you know, and Clint has to tell him like you wrote a great script and uh, but I'm going to be directing the film. And Agus has to accept. I mean, it's Clint Eastwood. What are you going to do? Yeah. And Clint says, but there are a few changes that I want to make. So Clint takes the script home and he starts working on the script. Yeah. And this is what he says. He does multiple rewrites. And at some point he le- reads his latest rewrite and he realizes that the more he rewrites, the worse it gets. Oh. 
And he remembers his mentor, who's Don Siegel, who's a director he worked under in the 60s. And Don Siegel had told him that you can kill something with improvements. Yeah. <laughs> and Clint realized that's exactly what he's doing. And he calls Paul Haggis up and says, I was wrong. We're going back to your original script. Wow. And he said, script's good. And here's the thing. For Clint Eastwood, when he says script's good, that's it. That's there it. are no ad libs on the set. We don't make changes on the set. Yep. They shoot what's on the page. And that's part of what makes him such an efficient director is everybody knows what we're going to do as opposed to the director that sh shows up and then throws the plan out the window. Yeah. That slows you down. And I, I just want to, you know, I, I, we said this when we talked about The Unforgiven. I sort of hinted on it. I just want to say it right at the beginning. Clint has worked with the same crew mm -hmm. for decades. He uh, is always organized. He expects everybody working on crew to be organized. Everyone shows up with their game on, on point, ready to go. It's super low stress. It's super efficient. And the only way to do this is to have, it has to be organized top down. If you don't have good leadership, you can't do this. And what it means is, is because they're so efficient, because they're organized, because they show up on the day at the moment, ready to shoot with a plan, Clint Eastwood is able to shoot more footage that looks better with less time and less money. He's always yeah. under budget <clears throat> and uh, there is um, and delivers before it's due. Rarely ever goes past the assigned time in terms of the day, uh, number of days he's allowed to shoot a film. Also, uh, actors now understand uh, that when they come on a set with Clint Eastwood, you're going to get one or two takes. And that's when the ego of the actor takes over and the actor comes uber prepared uber memorized has worked out 20 different ways to say these lines uh and hopes to get it right in the first or second take because that's what's going to end up in the film so as an actor it really requires you to do all this work offset before you step on set so that you can deliver right off the bat in the first or second take because that's all you're going to get the eastwood is not one of these 276 takes for one scene filmmakers he expects you to be as prepared as he is and his crew, as you said, radiates that kind of professionalism and preparedness. So if you show up on a set like an actor all lazy and stuff, you're gone. And you're not going to make it. And your performance is going to show on screen. Uh, it's going to show how limited you are as an actor. So I, I find that to be fantastic. And it's no surprise that he gets incredible performances, not just from his leads, but from his character actors, his secondary actors, and also the smaller one-scene parts. These actors really do show up. Uh, ready to deliver uh, their work, their best work. Well, and, and of course, the key to that is you got to start with good actors. And the way to start with good actors is you have a great casting director. And this movie is cast by Phyllis Huffman, who does an amazing job. And by the way, that's how Morgan Freeman wants to work. That's why he likes working with mm. Clint Eastwood is because it treats him like a pro, yep. like an artist. Like he's not getting directed to death. He's going to come in and he's going to do his job. He's going to do it the right way. And I and I have one story to illustrate this efficiency. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to say it really quick. One of my jobs when I'm teaching film school is that is to teach uh, my students how to manage time. And in fact, the quote I've always heard from Clint Eastwood is, "Directing is time management." And so one of the questions is when they go on to their bigger shoots is I say, okay, you're, you're, let's say your call is ten o'clock in the morning. What time are you going to get your shoot off? What time your first shot off? What time are you going to roll camera? And they go, oh, we get in at 10, uh, 10, 15. And I go, really? And then we kind of talk through it. And, I, and they say, uh, okay, maybe, maybe 10, 30. And I go, listen, I've done this a bunch. 
the fastest you're going to get your first shoot shot off is 10:45, and often when I'm on the set with these student films, yeah. it's 12:30. It's one o'clock before they get their first shoot shot off. Here's the first day of shooting of Clint's shoot. Now this is from Al Ruddy. I don't know if this is true. This is what he says: mm-hmm. Crew time call. Uh, the crew call was 10 a.m. They had in the schedule they're going to get their first shot off at 10:15. They rolled at 10:03. <laughs> and they're moving on to their second shot at 10.08. <laughs> they get on. They do the job. Now, I don't believe this. They had to pre-light because you can't light in three minutes. There's no way. Sure. It's not possible. But it's, it's exactly to your point of one take, two takes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Clint says, that's what it is. We're moving on. He, uh, Allen's that way. Woody Allen's that way, right? Yep. One or two takes and then you're gone. You're done. Well, And it's very similar. Cast great actors. Yep. You know, expect them to do their job. Don't give them a lot of direction. Mm-hmm. Move on. Yep. Yep. Um, All right. Shall we get into this film? Let's do it, man. Let's put on our boxing gloves. We start with uh, uh, that black and white Warner Brothers logo and the guitar music. And of course, one thing that we don't talk about that much, but the composer of this film is Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I think the music in this film is so important. Oh, man. It's very similar to his Unforgiven music. Mm. There are some, not that it's, you know, like uh, beat for beat the same, but the mood, the rhythm, the vibe is very similar to the score for uh, Unforgiven. So I love it. It's, and it's very, it's very much not the John Williams approach. This isn't yes. light motifs and big themes. This is tone. This is mood. Just as you say, I think the music's great. Uh, we hear a cry, crowd. We go right into a boxing match where we see Big Willie Little. That's Mike Coulter, who later becomes Luke Cage. And he's on the ropes taking some body blows. And there's the bell. And there's Clint in the corner. And we immediately go into Morgan Freeman voiceover. I only ever met one man I wouldn't want to fight. I mean, what, what, else, what else can we say about Morgan Freeman doing the voiceover? <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Any movie you can find with a Morgan Freeman voiceover is an experience and a half, you know, and the people who can imitate him the best uh, when they're doing voiceovers of other things are just incredible to watch. So he's just got one of the greatest voices ever. It's so great. And, and of course, part of the key is he's not putting that much on it. He's just nope. tell, He's just telling the truth. He's telling you the story. And what he's talking about is that uh, Clint was a cut man. He's been doing it for 60 years. And this is this weird thing of like, he's the, our, our, our fighter is injured, he's bleeding, and if he bleeds too much, the doctor's going to call the fight. And so the cut man has to basically make it look like this guy isn't as injured as he is to get him to keep fighting. And he's putting some coagulant or something in there. And it's not stopping bleeding. And Clint gets him, convinces him to, to go out and fight. And the boxer turns to him and says, what do I, what do, I do? Tell me what to do. And Clint's response is, you let him hit you. <laughs> Which right there is a great opening of a movie. Yeah. And what we hear from Morgan Freeman is, Sometimes there's just nothing you can do. Cuts too wide, too close to the bone. Or you just can't get the coagulant deep enough. And we see our fighter drop his hand, and he takes a punch right to the face. And we zoom in on the wound, and you hear the tiny bit of the wound sealing up, that he needed that punch to get the coagulant deep. That's a great opening. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. You, right away, you realize this is a guy who likes to take control of a situation, doesn't mind breaking the rules or crossing a line, and has the full and complete trust of his fighters. Yep. Absolutely. Those are great points. And, of course, who's watching him, really watching 
Frankie watching Clint Eastwood is Hillary Swank in the audience yeah. watching. And as soon as that uh, wound seals up, Big Willie knocks the other fighter down, wins the fight. What's great about the way Hillary's introduced is very reminiscent of a high plains drifter, right? Because mm. she comes she comes out of the darkness in the hallway above uh, in the in the uh, uh, higher part of the stadium, right, or wherever they're at the arena they're at. She is not front row. She's not sitting in the back waiting on him or watching it on TV. She comes out of the shadows, um, and, and it's a great pre- it's a great way to come into this whole situation. It's a great way to introduce this character. This is not a character that draws attention to herself. This is not a character who needs the spotlight. This is a character who has no problem hiding because she's working mentally uh, and internally on a whole different level, and you can tell that from the beginning. Thought you might be interested in training me. I don't train girls. Maybe you should. People see me fat, say I'm pretty tough. Girly, tough ain't enough. And he walks away, and we leave her face in the shadows. I love Hillary's approach, or Maggie's approach to Frankie. Yeah. Is that she's, she, I, what I will say is, I think she has the confidence that comes from having nothing. Yeah. She's got nothing to lose. If you don't understand the social norms of a situation uh, and you've had to fight to live, to survive, which we find out way later in the film. Uh, that is the overwhelming approach you have to life is to keep banging on it till the wall breaks. Right. And for her, there was a determination because she has that feeling. Once again, that's what I mean. She's, she's vibrating at a completely different frequency than everyone else, and she vibrates at a frequency that leads to greatness. She knows what's correct. She knows she's going to get it. She knows she's going to wear him down, and she knows she's doing the right thing no matter how long it takes to get there. She knows she needs to do it that way, or else she's not going to achieve what she knows she can achieve with the right trainer. And she's got nothing else. Right. That's this is it. This is every this is her life. And so all she can do is keep hitting that heavy bag, mm-hmm. staying up all night, hitting the heavy bag. That's all she's got. And now we're out in the uh, parking lot with Big Willie and we can see that from all the money they're making from these fights that that Frankie drives a really nice car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now they got to push start it. And uh, and Frankie's just had a conversation and Willie asked what it's about. And they and Frankie says. We got offered a title shot. About time. I turned him down flat. Two or three more fights, you'll be ready. I think Big Willie, the actor, plays this all so perfectly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Mike Coulter does such a great job. Because you can see all the feelings. And he says... You've been two, three more fights for a long time now, Frankie. Frankie says, you get one shot, you lose it, you're not coming back again. Two or three more fights, we'll be ready. What do you say, Frankie? And there's so much in there. Yeah. What I want to point out, I think this screenplay is incredible. I think Clint was right to go back to the original one. And this, you know, we've talked about plants and payoffs. And Mm. we talked about it in Back to the Future, the ultimate plants and payoffs movie. We talked about it in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. This movie, the plants and payoffs are incredible. Mm. Is that right in this scene where he says two or three more fights, we see Frankie's basic character. Yeah. He wants to protect his fighter. Mm-hmm. He wants to protect his fighter to a fault. Yes. He's almost too cautious, too wanting to refine it too much 
wanting to be too perfect. And like you just said, improvements can ruin a whole uh, something if you start to work on it too much. What a great point. That's such a great way to connect those things. I hadn't thought about it. I mean, that's what it feels like. He wants yeah. to improve his boxer so much that his boxer is untouchable, but that's not possible. Yeah. So he'll keep him away from a title shot until he's perfect, and he'll never be perfect. Yep. So it'll be a cycle that never finds a, a place to stop. Frankie likes to say that boxing is an unnatural act, that everything in boxing is backwards. <laughs> that idea of everything in boxing is backwards is something we're going to come back to and come back to. And I think it's a line that, that gains more and more meaning the more I think about it. In terms of the film and the action of this film. And as we're hearing that, we see Hillary Swank on the bus, you know, riding home on a lonely bus. And we hear Morgan Freeman says, Sometimes the best way to deliver a punch is step back. But step back too far. You ain't fighting at all. And while we hear this, the other thing we see is Clint Eastwood kneeling by a bed and praying. And he has trouble getting down and he has trouble getting up. Yeah. Um, we're at church. <laughs> and I would love to hear you I would love to hear your thoughts on what the hell this is about. It's so funny is that Clint yeah. comes up which apparently for 23 years he's been going to this going to mass every day yeah. and every day harassing the priest. And yeah. this one is about explain this, you know, three god one god three god thing yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh and the prince uh the priest is uh Brian O'Burn, good uh Good Irish name. Good Irish name. And, and Eastwood even compares the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to Snap, Crackle, and Pop from the Vice <laughs> And I love the priest because he's like, you do this every day. You're yeah. going to get a rise out of me today. And then he does. And then, <laughs> and then he does. And he says, there are no demigods, you fucking pagan. <laughs> <laughs> Why does Frankie do this? What uh, is, what's happening? You know, when I watch these scenes, I always think he's just... He's an instigator. He's a fighter. Uh, for him, yeah. this is, you know, what greater opponent can there be than God? So to step in the ring with God and go toe-to-toe with God and go a few rounds with God uh, and his message, right? And so he's got a, a place to put that anger or questioning mm. to, and that's a priest. And he knows uh, that the priest will do it and have the conversation with him, right? There's this uh, relationship he's built up. He's a man of... What do you call this? Patterns. He's a man of patterns. Yeah. You know, he does this every day. Like you said, 23 years, he goes to that gym. He wants the things a certain way. There's a pattern uh, of his life. Even when he talks to Hillary later, he's like, you're going to do everything I say. Don't question me. But there's his patterns. Uh, and so he's built this nice, safe life where he has the occasional moment of smirkiness and feeling like an imp a little bit when he's going up against the priest. But it's for his own self-satisfaction. And the priest allows him to do it as well because a priest is beholden to try to save yeah, every yeah. soul that comes into contact with him or her. Right, exactly. So, uh, But I love these moments because they're a great way also character-wise to not let you uh, fall into the stereotype of the grizzled trainer. Like there's more going on with him. And, of course, you find out of his daughter and all of that. So there's more going on with him than is normally seen when we see a trainer of boxers in movies. I, I, I think that's right on the money. And you actually made me – I think I, I, I figured out part of it for me too is that we, see, we saw him praying. Mm-hmm. We know that his religion is really important to him. Yes, yes. It, but I also think – that he has fundamental doubts. Yes. And so what he actually wants is the priest to convince him 
Yes. That what he's believing in is right. And that and that actually there is God and there is heaven and there mm-hmm. are things to have faith in, but he's so snarky <laughs> that he can't, you know, in the end, you, you you have to take a leap of faith. And he's like going, no, help me, help me to get there. And of right. course, it's, it's impossible for the priest to do. But isn't um, this a part of who he is? Absolutely, yeah. He's seeking perfection. Even yeah. in the priest yeah. situation, he's seeking perfection. Because I think one of the interesting things is, I think there's a reason to believe that he is in fact the perfect fight trainer. Oh, yeah. Like he's figured it oh, out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. except that he cannot control everything. Yeah, which is you know? why this story is about him and Maggie. Yeah, absolutely. Both, both have to change. Yeah. Let's head to the hit pit. <laughs> <laughs> Go out to the gym. And, and again, I love how Morgan Freeman is exploding these ideas about boxing. And the first thing he says is, some people say the most important thing a fighter can have is heart. Frank would say, show me a fighter who's nothing but heart, and I'll show you a man waiting for a beating. And now we get to meet Danger. Danger. <laughs> uh, Jay Bevershell. Uh, he's great. Oh, my this. God. He's <laughs> so character. funny. And he gets kind of dumped by a truck, and he goes to introduce himself to Morgan Freeman. And his first line contains a word that I do not say. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the moment is so funny. <laughs> and Morgan Freeman's reaction is so great. Right. Because he says, Hey, you know... I got nothing against. <laughs> Morgan turns to him and says, Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and he is convinced that he is going to not only be the champ, middleweight, you know, welterweight champion of the world, yeah. but he's going to fight Tommy Hearns. Tommy Hearns, who's been retired for quite some time. <laughs> quite some time. <laughs> the um, yeah. And they're training in the ring at the hit pit are. Two uh, members of the Marvel community. Yes, yes. Anthony Mackie and Michael Pena, right? Yeah. I had totally forgotten that they were in this movie. Oh, yeah. And they are going to, they're given, there are jerks. There are jerks of the gym. Shaurel Berry had a left hook that would move a tank, but he had a heart the size of a split pea. So we got the guy with all heart, danger. That's a guy who's going to take a beating. And we got a guy who's got the physical skills, but no heart in Anthony Mackey's character. Yeah. And we hear a little bit about how Frankie ended up with this gym, which is that the previous owner decided to retire and then died before he could leave. And that Frankie ends up with the gym, which I think is important because it has echoes of what happens at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and then we have, I, so what's, what's hard about doing this, the little scenes that aren't mm-hmm. important are so good that I want yeah. to talk about them. They decorate right the now, larger ones. Clint Eastwood walks up to Morgan Freeman and criticizes his choice of bleach. And how many times have I got to tell you that bleach is bleach? Why can't you just buy the cheap stuff? You don't always have to buy the expensive stuff. It smells better, Frankie. Bleach smells like bleach. It smells the same. It all smells the same. Bleach smells like bleach. Bleach is bleach. Um, and in comes Big Willie. Yeah. He walks over and makes eye contact with this slick-looking guy near the ring, and that is Mickey Mack. Yeah. And Morgan watches, goes inside to Frankie's office where he's reading something in another language. Yeah. And Morgan says, I just thought you might like to know you got a fighter out there and not talking to another manager. Not talking to another manager? And not just any manager. Mickey Mack. And he's like, you think it's important to tell me that my fighter is not talking to this guy? <laughs> well, and this is the thing, is that Scrap, Morgan Freeman's character, yeah. is an incredible observer. Which is why he narrates the movie. Yeah. 
and has deep understanding about what's going on. And he is seeing this thing in Big Willie. Oh, yeah. That Frankie has blinded himself to. Right. And we know exactly what that thing is because we heard the way Big Willie said, been two or three fights for a while now. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yep. And this is also the first time we see Maggie at the heavy bag. Who's your new girl? What? Frankie doesn't like girl boxers. <laughs> he doesn't want her in the, in the gym. He doesn't like the way that she looks hitting that bag. He thinks she's going to lose in business. Wasting your time. I told you I don't train girls. Thought you might change your mind. There's dozens of trainers who train girls. You won't have any trouble finding one. Don't hardly need a dozen, boss. You'll do fine. And she's got that same smiley attitude yep. of like, I'm not giving up. You will, boss. Don't call me boss now. I'm not your boss, and don't you be calling me that. If I stop calling you boss, will you train me? No. Then I might as well just keep calling you it. <laughs> That's what I mean. She is there to just deconstruct his patterns, to absolutely shake him out of this uh, life of his that he has constructed for him. This safe, mm-hmm. comfortable life of his he's constructed for himself. She is there to challenge him. Uh, she is there to test his faith. And I, I love that. It's like she, she understands something about him yeah. that he doesn't understand about himself. And that yeah. understanding gives her the confidence to just, I'm just here. I want to say something, Steve, before we move on. I think it's really important with Clint Eastwood to have this discussion real quick. And that is a lot of people uh, came after him after Richard Jewell. It's really frustrated me, really angered me, especially a lot of the critics, the movie critics, a little bit of the liberal critics. I was really frustrated to see them bashing Richard Jewell, saying, oh, this Olivia Wilde character, oh, it's being used that she slept to get sources, as if no one has ever slept to get information from somebody. Um, And they were denigrating, oh, female character. How could you do this with a female character? He has a history, uh, Eastwood does, of having strong female characters in his movies. Million Dollar Baby is yet another example of a strong Mm -hmm. female character leading the movie, teaching him lessons throughout the movie instead of vice versa. Um, And that is, I think, important to point out. He is a filmmaker who's, yes, Republican. Yes, he spoke to a chair. Yes, all of that stuff. But he's not a dyed-in-the-wool one thing. He's a man of interesting points of views complex points of views and different points of views to try to put Clint Eastwood in a box is a disservice to yourself and to him. He has a point of view and he expresses it in his movies. And it's very clear. Unforgiven. What's it about? It's about these men who assault and try to rape these women and scar up a woman. And he is assigned in essence, indirectly to go and seek revenge. And when he seeks revenge, he gets revenge on everyone for the mistreatment. And last thing he says is, don't cut up any more whores and blah, blah, blah. Come back and kill you and your family and all this stuff. So that's the thing. His There is a nobility to how Eastwood portrays these characters in the film. And to denigrate him or to try to marginalize him for one character in a movie and try to, and try to cast aspersions on it, it's just very frustrating for me. Because we cannot live in a world where only liberal filmmakers are made allowed to make movies. We, we have to... Be wide open to middle-of-the-road approaches to the world, and it used to be okay to do that. And it frustrates me to see it sometimes uh, in our critic sphere when they veer too far to the right or too far to the left to try to denigrate a filmmaker who has right-leaning tendencies. And I think it's unfair, especially with a great filmmaker like Lenny Wood. Well, I, I, I'll take it a step further than that, is that I don't think we can 
see a thing, like we've talked about this literally since the beginning of the cinephiles, hmm. of the difference between the thing the character did and the filmmaker's intent. Right. And sometimes I push against moments where I think the, you know, the filmmaker, this is their point of view coming through in a way that I don't like. Yeah. I don't think Clint Eastwood is saying that female reporters should sleep with people to get or that stories, they all do it, or that right. they all do. I think he's saying that this character does. And it brings up something literally I've scrolled down in my notes to the very end of my notes yeah. because, and, and this is something I was going to talk about at the end of the film, but look, we, we spoil all movies that we talk about. This movie is going to go to a very dark place where, yeah. um, her, she's going to break her neck. She's going to become paralyzed. And that Clint Eastwood is going to be the face with the choice of killing her assisted uh, suicide, assisted yes. suicide. When this happened, uh, disability rights advocates came after the movie and they said, you know, this is absolutely wrong. It's terrible. You shouldn't do it. And there was a bunch of controversy. Here's what Clint Eastwood said. He said, I've gone around in movies blowing people away with a 44 Magnum, but that doesn't mean I think that's the proper thing to do. Is that this is what that character did in that movie. And is it motivatable that the character did it? Is it, is it a good story? Does it make you think about it? That doesn't mean you're saying that's what's good. I don't think, you know, your, your, your interpretation of the end of Unforgiven is different from mine. Mm -hmm. but, but I don't think you watch Unforgiven and just go, this is good, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I think you watch Unforgiven and go, is this good? Right. Like, it's a complex know, character. It's a complex character. Yeah. And it, it and that's good. I mean, that's what good movies do. If you watch I, I never saw Richard Jewell, by the way, although I've heard it's a good movie. It's damn good. If you watch that movie and go, I can't believe this character did it, that's horrible. That's okay. And if you watch the movie and go, I understand why this character did it, that's okay. That's what movies are. And people tried to install in that film, like, oh, it's his way of defending Trump and that this is the media and the But this actually happened. This is more about the media, regardless of your political affiliation, that can destroy a person hunting clicks because they're hunting right. clicks or hunting likes, and both sides of the media do it. And so it's like that's what his film was. But people, because he's a Republican, people feel that, oh, he was saying this. about, And they, and they judge the movie through that prism, and I think that has to stop at some point. I mean, it's not going to it's not going to stop. People are never going to stop judging movies. I mean, like, that's just yeah, that is what true, very that, true. that is. That is what it is. And and I think people, you know, it's like we talked about this when we talked about Chasing Amy. We talked about yeah. this. When we talked about oh, yeah. Reservoir Dogs. We talked about this over and over and over again. Good movies make you force you sometimes to confront yeah. things you don't want to confront. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, uh. So uh, anyway, he's talking to Maggie. He walks away from her. I love, by the way, Morgan Freeman's description of where she came from. Said in the seat is an oak tree somewhere between nowhere and goodbye. Yeah, that's such a great line. It's a great line. And we see that she's a waitress, and we also see that she's stealing food. Claiming she has a dog. Yeah, and that she and that she would go home and she eats that steak that was for her quote-unquote dog, and we, she's got that jar of coins. And and this it's great storytelling. Like we get exactly who this person is. We like her a lot. And in this moment that we see here, that's when she's back at the at the gym and Clint says, get rid of her. And Morgan's like, Well, she paid. And he's like, How much she pay? Six months. And then Eastwood goes, Well, just don't encourage her. <laughs> <laughs> and then we cut to Danger, who's looking at a bottle of frozen water. Oh, it's just brilliant. And he asks, He paid his dues? Dues. Well, I can't afford pants. Want him to pay dues? <laughs> <laughs> and here's what I love 
is that I love that Frankie's gruff, angry, cold, that's all bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> is that he doesn't kick out danger. Right. He, he supports Morgan's, Morgan Free Scrap's soft-hearted approach to these people. Right. He wants that, but he can't show that he wants it. Well, because, and I've found this to be true in life, the people who are the gruffiest, angriest people are the most sensitive people because they do that so you don't get close to them. They do that so you can't hurt them. They do that so they can't care about you and lose you and feel the weight of that loss. And so they create a world where they can control access to themselves and the gruffiness and the gruff nature usually uh, uh, is that a gate you have to walk through and push through to get to what's actually inside. Well, if what you say is true, then Clint Eastwood must be the softest, most sensitive man in the history of the world. <laughs> I think he is. Because he is the best grump ever on film yeah. bar yeah. None. I don't disagree. <laughs> There's nobody who is crusty better than yeah, Eastwood. That's a great word, crusty, yes. <laughs> um, it's late at night. Morgan Freeman comes out of the dark, turns off the light, and hears she's still hitting that heavy bag. And he goes to watch her. And I just want, you know, our budding filmmakers, budding cinematographers, photographers, Look at the lighting of this scene. And in fact, the lighting throughout the movie, the use of silhouettes, the use of shadows, like in the, in, in the first shot where he's watching her, his legs are illuminated, but the top half of his body is in shadow. And what I want you to understand, every shadow, and then you'll see people move in and out of the shadows. You'll see edge light around their head. You'll see half of their face in shadows. That's all created on purpose. That's created with flags and with lights, and it's shaped and framed over a long period of time. None of that is by accident. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of expertise. And you remember when I said that these people have worked with Clint forever? Yeah. Well, Tom Stern is the DP, the director of photography for this film. I look back, the earliest one I could find is he was Clint's gaffer on Sudden Impact in 1983. Wow. So that's 21 years earlier. The last thing he did with Clint was 2017, 15, 17 to Paris. Yeah. So this guy, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I had to do math. That's 44 years that he's worked with this guy. Yeah. You know, like that's just, there's nothing, nobody like that in film that works with these people as long as that. Can't think of it as a bag. And then he starts to teach her. I'm not a trainer, but I can show you this if you like. Appreciate any help I can get. And of course, Morgan Freeman could be a trainer. Scrap could be a trainer. <laughs> of course he could. He's been around this game forever. When he's moving towards you, he's moving around you, he's moving away from you, all right? Now, you don't want to hit him when he's coming towards you, because what he's going to do is he's just going to push you back. He's going to smother your punches. And I love the way they talk about boxing, and you can tell that FX tool knew boxing. Yeah. Because this feels like, in a way that uh, I don't think Rocky does, I don't think Raging Bull does, and I love both those films, a lot of good films about boxing, I don't think they understand boxing the way this movie does. There's just stuff in this that sounds like the real deep shit to me. And watch how he moves, and watch how she watches him. Good, good, keep that chin tucked in. And again, watch that lighting play on their faces. You get this down, we'll put you on a speed bag. You do have a speed bag. And there's that smile. And we see him pull down a box and he says, you can borrow this until you can buy your own. Yeah. And, she, and I love the last moment because she says, well, do you want to walk out with me? You know, we'll walk out together to go home. And he goes, no, I am home. 
and we see his room that he lives at the gym. And I love that she says, it's nice. Because <laughs> it's not a nice room. Yeah. But for her and her world, like, yeah. and, and it's at the gym, which is probably the place she loves more than anywhere else. Right. Uh, and here, here's a, th- this is just something Karen made me think. Remember you said before about, you know, you're getting a wife that's smarter than you? Yeah, yeah. Karen said at this moment that Morgan Freeman's character is all heart. Yeah. And I've been thinking about that ever since because I think that's totally a true statement. Mm-hmm. And I thought about what we say about danger is all heart. And the meaning oh, of what yeah. heart means yeah. for danger and what all heart means for Morgan Freeman. And is there a connection between those two kinds of heart? And I think when we, th- when we start to talk about Frankie and just the stuff you said, his sensitivity and his softness that's inside, yeah. he's all heart too. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Different meanings of this. If there's magic in boxing, it's the magic of fighting battles beyond endurance, beyond cracked ribs, ruptured kidneys, and detached retinas. It's the magic of risking everything for a dream that nobody sees but you. You felt that way. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Yeah, of course. I mean, building this channel that I'm building up, Steve, it's back yeah. being back in it again, being back in that pit again where you are like you just have a belief that it can work. If the, the, if if you just do enough good work, someone's going to notice it, someone who can sponsor it, someone who can fund it, someone who – so I can you know hire – uh, people of 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 uh, resume of note and talent, legacy and talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's all of that. So you just have to have an undying belief in the things you're trying to build. You know, I'm, I'm not a person who can comfortably become an, a, a cog in a machine. It just doesn't it doesn't work for me anymore. And so I'm trying to figure out if this is the thing that will lead to it. You know, so yeah, you have to have a belief in it. And and it's that's funny you stop on that line because it struck me this time as well. Really strong. You know, dream nobody sees but you. Yeah, nobody sees it but you. Nobody. Yeah, I, I, I can't tell you. That's me over and over and over and over again. Every project like that I started, I had an idea. Nobody understood what the fuck I was talking about. Right. Even I didn't understand it completely, but I was following a thing. I mean, even when we started the cinephiles, right? We didn't know what was going to oh, be. Oh yeah, true. And, and, and then the you know the vision starts to come, and you have this dream of what and and, and we still haven't reached the dream true. that I see and I think that you see for the show. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But you keep hitting that heavy bag you know you keep getting up and fighting for it because that's what we do hey flippy come in man i think i found somebody you can beat and that of course is maggie i don't fight women her shutdown of anthony it's so good because it comes to them saying that something about her titties man look at her little bitty titties they're like mosquito bites and then she says so your last fight shot real Spent so much time face down, I thought the canvas had titties. <laughs> Boom! Game over. <laughs> Just a full knockout and yeah. watching Danger laugh. And then I love, and this is a great director and a great performer, when he falls out of frame laughing. Yeah. Look at me, I'm Shawrell. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah. And, and Frankie notices it too. Mm-hmm. And he likes it. He likes how she stood up for herself. Right. He's not going to show that yet. It's so great. It's such a perfect uh, shot. Take it to, and he doesn't respond back, right? Because once again, he has the heart of a P. Yeah. So he exactly. won't fight back. He won't fight back even in a moment like that when he's trying to denigrate a woman and a woman completely owns his ass. He can't stand up for himself and he takes the loss. And Michael Pena even laughs. His buddy even laughs at him and stuff. So well, yeah. Because she has knockout power. 
Right. <laughs> right. Way, she yeah. takes him out in the Verbally first round. Verbally and physically. Yeah, exactly. Took him out in the first round. That's the right. first round. Um, and, and then Big <laughs> Willie says something about he's got to go. It, it, Frankie offers him a rub down and he says, no, no, I got to go. And something about his wife's car, which we yeah. don't really know what it is. But we know something's going on. And then Morgan Freeman says, man, the rub down whore today doesn't want one. And, and Clint is like, he refuses to see it. Right. He doesn't he want just, to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Little girl tends to be coming along. Yeah. It's almost like someone's been helping her. She might just be a natural. Looks like she's got something. She's got my speed bag. That's what she's got. <laughs> All fun. I love it. <laughs> and now he comes up to her and asks for a speed bag back. Look, you seem like a nice girl. Can I give you some advice? I'd appreciate that. You're going to find a trainer either in this gym or somewhere else that's going to want to train a girl. It's the latest freak show out there. But the only trouble is they're going to be wasting your time because you're too old. And then we set up this thing that, like, she's 31, and he says it takes four years to train. Uh, therefore, she's going to be 35 before she's going to get anywhere. I've been working it for three years. And you can't hit a speed bag? But she's never had any training. Right, right. The difference, the difference. Yep. And, and the thing is, she's won her fights without the training. Yep. So she knows to get to the next level, she needs him. You're not going to cry now, are you? No, sir. And he gives her the backpack. Keep the goddamn thing. Mm. I love Eastwood's... I think this, by the way, I think this is the best performance in a movie that I can think of. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I love Unforgiven, but it yeah. doesn't... It's just, this is so much more nuanced. I mean, Unforgiven, you're giving me a look like I'm crazy right yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, I, I get that it's nuanced, but I also think the switch in Unforgiven is just incredible. From what you're being handed at for a majority of the movie to when he fully becomes William Money and you realized, yeah. my God, this man is a scary as fuck. <laughs> you know? And I I, love I'm that. not putting down one. No, I know you're not. I know another. You're not. No, it's all subjective if, if you totally. feel it's your favorite. Yeah. Willie. Hey, Frankie. I'm sorry to come by in your house like this. I, I know you don't like people dropping in. Oh, you're not people, Willie. Welcome anytime. Come on in. And it ends up that Frankie helped him with the car thing because you get a sense that Frankie's part of the family. And I, and I love Willie says, I'm sorry to come to your house. I know you don't like people dropping in. And he says, you're not people. Because this is his son. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. He's never said you're my son. Right, right. And now this is the moment where his son is going to leave him. Right. And uh, that line where he says, and this is what a great screenwriter does. That line is, you don't like people coming to your house. Already, in his mind, he has begun the separation. Mm-hmm. Right? So by saying people, it's a distant term that feels that's not a familiar. So when saying it like that, he's essentially already laying the groundwork for what he's going to do next. Yeah. I also needed to talk with you about business. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I just got off the phone with Hogan. We're all set for September. Everything but the split. I got to leave you, Frankie. And Clint Eastwood's, what? What? He's like, <laughs> Eastwood's angry face is so scary. Yeah, it is scary, isn't it? <laughs> and he says, basically, you, you you taught me all this stuff, but you, I need to get the most out of this I can. Yeah. And you're not the guy. You don't have the connections. You're not that kind of a person. Mickey Max, a businessman. He can't teach you nothing. You already taught me everything I need to know. And it stops him. Yeah. It stops him. 
because he hadn't considered that. Yep. He hadn't considered that, oh, crap, there's nothing more to teach him here, you know? And he leaves. And this is the thing is that in watching this now several times, um, I think Eastwood knew that this was coming yeah. and was refusing to face it. Yep. yep. You know, he knew he knew a year ago that mm -hmm. he needed to get this guy the title fight where he was going to lose him and he couldn't do it. Will I tell you why? It was Mickey. Mickey's got the connections. No, it ain't about connections, Frank. It's about you not believing in him. Well, I found him. I stuck with him for eight years. How's that for not believing in him? You could have got him a title fight two years ago. Hell, he knew that. I'm amazed he stayed around this long. What was I supposed to do? Just put him in over his head? Not protect him? And that's the thing. This protection. I must protect him. And there's this phrase we're going to get to, which is, the, what's the first rule? Protect yourself at all times. Yeah, so. These ideas, and this is why it's such a good screenplay, is that everything that's being said makes sense in the scene. But then yeah. those things also resonate throughout the film and make connections with other things that make the film deeper. And when um, we find out about his daughter, that's when it really starts to kind of round into shape about why he, the way he is the way he is. But what about you, Scrap? What did your manager do? You were a hell of a fighter, a lot better than Willie. Which I think is interesting. He gets you a title fight, or did he just bust you out, banging your head against other people's fists until you lost your eye? I had my shot. I went out swinging, and no man can say I didn't. And I love the honesty between these guys. Like, yeah. they, they give each other shit in a loving way that's totally honest and brutal. Yeah, well, I remember. And excuse me if I didn't want my fighter spending the second half of his life cleaning up other people's spit. Mm. And, and the thing is, he admires Scrap and loves yeah. him. Yeah. That's not what he thinks at all. But that once again, right? What did I say? People who are the gruffiest, yeah. they lash, they, they're the most uh, sensitive. So they lash out. And that's because they, they, you know, they have a hard time with their feelings, with their emotions, reconciling it all. Um, so it becomes um, the response seems over the top for the situation because they're sensitive. And, and the thing is, is, and this is where I go, it's like, oh, actually, he wants to bring love. That's what yeah. he wants. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't know how. Right. Um, and again, this is the idea of like heart. What does it mean to have heart? Right. And I think Frankie is has huge amounts of heart and is disconnected from it. It doesn't know how, doesn't know what to do. He loved, he loved Willie. Yeah. And he didn't know how to show him that he loved him. Yeah. You know, and Willie left. And of course he's been trying to show his daughter. This is something we're going to get to that. He loves her for decades probably. Yeah. And can't do it. We go to a little bit of a montage where we see her at a restaurant. We see her running near a beach. We see her uh, working on the bag, and Frankie is watching her. We see her go to a store. She buys a speed bag with yeah. pennies. <laughs> <laughs> and Frankie is home. He's watching TV. It's the title fight. Right. And I love, I love the way that this is all put together. It's beautifully edited, um, which is that Frankie emotionally is in the ring with Willie. Yeah. You can see in his body that he is doing, you see his feet move, his hands move, his body moves, his balance shifts. And you hear again this voiceover. Boxing is an unnatural act because everything in it is backwards. You want to move to the left, you don't step left, you push on the right toe. To move right, you use your left toe instead of running from the pain like a sane person would do. You step into it. There's a lot in that. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think one of the differences between when I saw this movie in 2004 
and is that I had taken a lot of martial arts, but I hadn't started mm. teaching martial arts. Oh, okay. This stuff r- rings so true to me. Yeah, the connection to your toes and your feet and your how you move your balance and where power comes from. All of this was like, yeah, that's what it is. Mm. You know, is that you is is that? And I can feel I'm doing it right now, sitting in my desk as I'm putting pressure on my toe <laughs> to send the send the power up through my leg as I move my body. Like that's all like right, correct stuff. And the idea of moving towards the pain again is something I think that resonates later in the film. Yeah. And Big Willie wins. He's the new champion of the world. Right. What that moment must be for Frankie. Right. Because he did it. He created this champion. And he is not there. And again, this is this, everything is backwards. Everything is a a study in contradictions is what I would say about this. Mm -hmm. Frankie trains a fighter to hurt another fighter. That's his job. Yeah. To do that, he must put them through pain and agony. That's the only way we can see it. He must create pain and agony. But when he puts them in the ring to hurt another fighter, they risk that that fighter is going to get hurt. And it's that risk that he can't take. I mean, there's so many contradictions. And so his motivation is protection. But to protect them, he must hurt them. And to give them what they want, to let Big Willie be who Big Willie has to be, he has to put them in a position where they can be really hurt. And where is this movie going to go? It's going to go exactly to the the peak of this, the apotheosis of this idea of protection and pain and suffering and moving through pain. Right. Morgan's in his room. Frankie shows up. Want a cheeseburger? <laughs> Again. You never, you never yeah. buy me a cheeseburger. <laughs> you never buy me a cheeseburger. You watch it? Yeah, I got HBO. How can you afford HBO? <laughs> How long have I been telling you to save your money? Ever since I fought Louis Typhoon Johnson at the stadium club in Tupelo, Mississippi. And we hear this story about how the drunk manager left them both behind and they're in the middle of nowhere and trying to hitch home. And that and I love that Morgan Freeman says, I remember you leaving me with my dick in my hand behind that gas station. It ends up that like he got a ride. Frankie did. And the yeah. guy pulled away before he could say, no, my buddy's over there. And he went he had to hike back a mile <laughs> to find uh, to find scrap. Yeah, right. Your conscience got the better of you. That's what. Conscience and doing the right thing, again, going back to do the right thing. What's going to happen at the end of this movie? You know, trying to figure out what the right thing. And why does he go back to Morgan Freeman, an African-American man left alone in the middle of nowhere in the South? He goes back to protect him. Yeah. And now we go to see Maggie. And it's her birthday. She's 32. And she is celebrating. This is how she celebrates. Work in the bag. And I'm here celebrating the fact that I spent another year scraping dishes and waitressing, which is what I've been doing since 13 and according to you, I'll be 37 before I can even throw a decent punch. This speech is amazing. 19 years. Man. Yeah. Other truth is, my brother's in prison. My sister cheats on welfare by pretending one of her babies is still alive. My dad is dead and my mama weighs 312 pounds. If I was thinking straight, I'd go back home, find a used trailer, buy a deep fryer and some Oreos. The problem is, this is the only thing I ever felt good doing. If I'm too old for this, then I got nothing that enough truth to suit you mm. it's richard gear in officer and a gentleman it's, totally right it's any of these films that you've seen depicting a character that is has nothing else therefore the dream is more powerful than it would be for someone who's distracted by multiple things if there's nothing else then that dream is 
everything you're holding on to. So it identifies who you are. And so it has to work. It has to be possible. And some people do achieve that because they are so singular-minded about it, you know? And some people, unfortunately, fall by the wayside when they can't achieve it and, and, and spiral into depression or sadness or whatever. Uh, and that's the truth, you know? And so she put, it all, she put it all on the table to him, you know? She said, this is my reality. This is my truth, uh, you know? And it takes him aback. It takes him aback, you know? Want to hear I something crazy? Yeah. So you mentioned officer and a gentleman. Yeah, yeah. Karen and I stopped the movie right around this point. We were talking about it. You know what Karen said? What? She said, I've got nowhere else to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is officer and gentleman. Like she yeah. quoted, it's, it's exactly what this moment is. <laughs> and he, and she goes back to hitting the speed bag. He goes, okay, stop, stop. I'll show you a couple things. Yeah. And, and the reaction of when Joy. he says that of just, thank you. I'll show you a few things. And then we'll get you a trainer. No, sorry. You're in a position to negotiate? Yes, sir. Because I know if you train me right, I'm going to be a champ. I've seen you looking at me. Yeah, out of pity. And this is the only time she gets angry. Yeah. Don't, don't you say that. Don't you, don't say, you say that. that. Don't you say that if it ain't true. That's strong. That's a strong yeah. thing to say. I want a trainer. I don't want charity. And I don't want favors. And of course, from the shadows, Morgan Freeman is watching. And I think, again, for you directors out there, for you screenwriters out there, it adds nothing to the scene and everything. Yeah. Having that, having that witness to this. If you're not interested, then I got more celebrating to do. Clint's face, you know, talk about a face etched in iron and pain and sorrow and time. And he watches her and she goes back to punching and he stops her again. And he says, God damn it. Stop. Stop. God damn it. Stop. Like she's beating him. Yeah. She has beaten him down. Okay. If I'm going to take you on... You won't never regret it. Look, just listen to me. If I take you on... I promise I'll work so hard. (laughs) She is beaming. Her smile is everywhere. He can't even get through the sentence. God, this is a mistake already. (laughs) (laughs) If I take you on, you don't say anything. You don't question me. You don't ask why. You don't say anything except maybe, uh, yes, Frankie. And I'm going to try to forget the fact that you're a girl. That's all I ask. And don't come crying to me if you get hurt. Which is, of course, where the movie's going to go. I'm going to teach you how to fight. Then we'll get you a manager and I'm off down the road. Well, I hate to argue with you, but... Don't argue with me. That's the only way we're doing it. I teach you all you need to know, and then you go off and you make a million dollars. I don't care. You get your teeth knocked out. I don't care. (laughs) I don't want to hear about it either way. That's just the way it's going to be. And then they shake hands, and again, a beautiful silhouette. The deal he made just now is exactly what happened with Big Willie. Yep. I'm going to teach you everything I know, and then you're going to go off and make a million dollars and be champion of the world. (laughs) Right. And that is exactly what hurt him. Yeah. And so he's now said, I'm going to make exactly the deal that was terrible for me. And he said the biggest lie in the whole movie. Go get hurt. Get your teeth knocked out. I don't care. Right. and what's interesting is that, you know, protect yourself at all times. He is tr- thinks he's trying to protect himself. Yeah. He's saying, I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to get emotionally involved. Right. I'm going to harden my heart to this person so that whatever happens to him, whether they, whether they have either amazing success without me, I'm going to be okay with that. Or if they get hurt and ruined, I'm going to be okay with that too. Yeah. And of course, she's going to have both of those things. Yeah. 
amazing success and amazing tragedy. Right. And he is not going to be okay with any of it. Nope. And then again, we get the teaching. They go hit the bag. Stop. And you can see it just pains him the way she hits the bag. What I do wrong? Okay, you did two things wrong. One is you asked a question, and two is you asked another question. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many. We've talked about so many great teachers. There's yeah. Mr. Miyagi, and there's uh, Yoda, and there's um, Mickey in Rocky. This is another one. So really good teacher. It's not about hitting it hard. It's how good you hit it. So watch me. And you count with me if you want. I guess it's just count on a one count. I hit right through the bag. Can you show me that I'll again? Just, just say one, please. One. Okay. One. One. Okay. And Hilary Swank's performance, the joy. Yeah. It's like she's a person who just came out of the desert, had needed a drink of water, and now there's suddenly there's cool water for her to drink. Yeah. You know, yeah. it completes her in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely agree. And then what we do is we go into a montage. Yeah. What's so crazy about this, this is the classic training montage. It is structurally exactly like a montage from Rocky. And the way when you're doing a montage like this, you're, you're going to show a progression. So you're going to show a few things and you're going to show progression in each of those things. So in this case, it's like the speed bag. It's like the jump rope, footwork sit-ups, physical fitness, all those things. And what, yeah. when you start off, first time, she's terrible. Yeah. Second time, small progression, still bad. Third time, pretty good. Fourth time, now she excels. Yeah. And we see that, you can see that in Rocky 1, you see it in Rocky 4, and you see it in this, and it's the same kind of montage, except the tone is completely different. Yep. It doesn't even feel the same. And I think the big reason is the music. is that this is somber and moving and personal yeah. instead of bum, 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 bum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just yeah. a different thing. To make a fire, you gotta strip them down to bare wood. You can't just tell them to forget everything you know. You gotta make them forget it in their bones. Make them so tired they only listen to you. They only hear your voice. They only do what you say and nothing else. Uh, there was an expression, maybe I've said it on the cinephiles before, but a martial arts expression that I really love, which is the idea that when you first learn a thing, it's written on that first layer of your skin, like in pencil. And if you never did it again, it would just fall off. And if you do it six months or something, now it's written kind of deeper in the skin and deeper. Yeah. And if you do it for years and years, eventually that, that knowledge gets written on your bones. But that's not really what you want. What you really want is for it to be written in the marrow in the core of your bones inside. And when you have that knowledge, when it's written that way, and that only comes with years and years and years and years of practice and repetition, then it's yours. Yeah. It's your knowledge. It's in your, it's in your bones. And that's what they're talking about here. Then you gotta show them all over again, over and over and over, till they think they were born that way. If you were in a Rocky montage, it ends with him running up the steps. Yeah. You know, or at the end of the Rocky Four montage, it ends up at the top of the mountain in a huge, powerful, triumphant moment. This ends almost like with a whimper. Yeah. Think I'm ready for a fight, boss? So, and of course, like in all these movies, we've done a lot of sports movies lately, is that Hillary Swank had a train. And mm -hmm. she was working, she was basically freaked out. 
she was so scared that she wouldn't be able to deliver. She was working on um, Red Dust, which is a movie I've never seen in South Africa before this. And she, working on that movie, would shoot all day and then train for four hours every single day, six days a week. And what was really tough for her, she's a very slight build, and she had to put on weight. She had to put on muscle. Well, she's a vegetarian at the time. So really hard to put on muscle when you're a vegetarian. This is what she ended up doing. She, she drank 60 egg whites a day. What? Yes. And she had to do it every one and a half hours, which means in the middle of the night, she has an alarm set to wake her up to drink egg whites because it's the fastest way you can eat them um, and have a protein shake. She put on 19 pounds of muscle, which – which I, my guess is she weighed 100 pounds starting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's not a big person. So yeah. 19 pounds of solid muscle is some serious, serious training. Yeah. And, and it shows. I mean, you know, I, we, it's so funny because we've done Chariots of Fire and Field of Dreams and all these movies. We just did Major League where they talk about, oh, this person was really a good athlete. And sometimes I think it's true and sometimes it isn't. But I think she moves really well as a boxer. Yeah. I think she, I think she took this training real seriously. And I think the fear of failure, like you talked about before working with Clint, that's a hell of a motivator. I think I might be ready for a fat boat. Well, we'll get a manager and we'll find out. And Morgan Freeman is watching this whole thing. And she asks him, got any family boss? No. Well, I've got a daughter, Katie. That's family. We're not exactly close. How much you weigh? <laughs> Which is a really weird question. <laughs> Trouble in my family comes by the pound. Not very big. Used to be real athletic. Don't know if she kept it up. And the camera pushes in on him, and she says, What do you think? I ready for a fight? I think if she hadn't asked about family, this scene would not have gone where this scene goes. I think it's because he's thinking about his estranged daughter, and because he wants to protect himself, because he knows that he's really starting to care about her, which is what he didn't want to do, that he says, Hey, Sally. Come here for a minute, will you? And brings this sort of slick-looking, scummy guy over and says, Sally here's a real good manager. Has a couple of Golden Glove boys. Looking for a girl, Sally? And the look from Hillary Swank at this moment. Oh, yeah. He's so stupid here, Steve, because he essentially turns her unwittingly, unwittingly, into a prostitute. I'm going to hand you off to this better man to take care of you. Because uh, I've taken you as far as I, I you know, uh, this is the deal. To a worse and man. Her, By the way, her, to a worse man. To a worse man, right. Yeah. So her look is one of complete and utter betrayal and disgust. And yet, it's something that she's experienced before and you can tell by the way she composes herself. She doesn't fall apart. She doesn't get emotional. She has been passed off like this before. So she knows exactly what to say. And Lord Almighty, does she say it. And I think what's so interesting is that his motivation, basic motivation we've seen from the beginning, is to protect people. Protects Willie, protects Scrap, protect even danger. You know, he doesn't kick danger out on the street. And of course, and now he thinks he's protecting himself. What's the first rule? Protect yourself at all times. And in fact, what he's doing is hurting her, hurting the person he most wants to protect. So you want to give this a try? See if it's a fit. And she looks over at Frankie, and he is not giving her anything. 
Yeah, sure. Good. Because I think you're ready for a fight. And we cut to the fight. Right. And she's losing. What am I doing wrong, Sal? Every time I get into she's all mad. You're doing great. You're wearing her down. Just keep punching. I ain't doing great. I'm losing. You're wearing her down. So terrible. Yeah. And the round starts, and she goes in and starts getting hit again. And we see up in the rafters somewhere are Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood, and they're watching. And he, the pain on Frankie's face. Your laughs. Keep your laugh up. He's, it's so emotional for him. Yeah. And what we basically hear from Morgan Freeman, while he continues to say, keep your left up, and Morgan Freeman's like, she can't hear you from here. <laughs> what we basically hear is that this whole thing's a setup, that this yeah. guy is letting her, putting her up against someone that she's going to lose to to help his other fighters, basically. Right, right. Um, and again, he keeps saying, keep your left up, and then they go down. Okay, great. Hey, come here. Dropping your left hand. Quit dropping your left hand. Hey, Frankie, you mind if I talk to my fighter? Well, you're doing a hell of a job of it, Sally. And the ref comes up and is like, what's going on? Is this your fighter? It's my fighter. It ain't fitting real well, Sally. Fine. You take her. She can't fight worth a shit anyway. You're telling me this is your fighter? And the cares a pause, and the camera pushes in on him, and he says, Yeah, this is my fighter. And you got ten seconds. I keep holding my left up off, then I throw a punch and it keeps dropping. Yeah, well, let it drop. That'd be a lot easier. She thinks she knows you, that's all. Every time you drop it, she comes right over the top. So you just wait for her, see? That's all she's thinking about. And when she cocks that big right hand, you hear me? I hear boss. And when she does, you step to the side and come over with this big, good night hook. You got one? Got it right here. And it just, this clicks, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just everything is coming together. And she the round starts. You know, she drops her hand, there's a left cross, and she just knocks her down. Yeah. And, and what I love, too, in this moment is Morgan Freeman reacts to this. He says, the way she did that, yeah. Sugar Ray would do that. Girl's got sugar. And what I love is to so watch the scene. And, you know, because first, what, what happens when we first watch a movie is we're usually watching the person that's talking. So, so you're going to watch Morgan Freeman. Watch it again and watch Clean Eastwood's face. Because he saw the same thing Morgan Freeman saw, and it shocked him. He didn't know that she got sugar. And he sees mm-hmm. that she's a whole other level of fighter than he thought she was before. You, uh, you forgot the rule. Now, what is the rule? Keep my left up? Is to protect yourself at all times. Now, what is the rule? Protect myself at all times. Good, good. And then, I love this moment is so great. She says, You gave me away. How is that protecting me? wasn't that's that's strong yeah yeah like i said and and the thing too i think he knew how he felt about willie but couldn't face it he knew how he felt about her but couldn't face it and so gave her away not only did she know how she felt about him she knew how he felt about her right so this moment how is that protecting me is her saying it like we have something special between the two of us Mm -hmm. other than that how'd i do Fine. You did fine. You gonna leave me again? And he says, never. It's an amazing moment, that never. Yeah. It's been building to this moment. And she has earned this. Because by the same token, remember, just because, you know, she wants him to be his trainer or his, his her manager, rather, her trainer, doesn't necessarily mean he owes it to her to be that. She had to earn it and fight for it. She's a nobody. 
he's a accomplished trainer. So she had to work her way up to that moment. And she persisted and she fought through it and she put him on notice a couple of times as well. And then in that moment is where he finally comes around to her and he's like, never. And he's fully committed to her now. Why? Because she broke through his defenses. Once again, he's a sensitive guy. There's no one he wants to protect more than himself. Uh, and it's not a selfish thing. It's just because he knows how much it hurts him to hurt other people or to see other people hurt under his watch. Uh, and so when she's finally burrowed through those defenses, those grizzled, gruff defenses, she's got to his heart. Uh, and right after Mike has left him, here comes Maggie to repair him and to be that pseudo slash daughter that he doesn't have in his life anymore, which we don't know much yep. about. Yep. And so it's like it's she comes in and fills that spot that he's been missing. Well, and I think what's so great about the scene is that ostensibly this is a scene about a manager and a fighter. Yes. And when she asks what we're talking about is, is he going to quit as her manager as he did before? Yeah, that's what the scene is on the surface. Right. But that isn't what the scene is when he he doesn't say, I'm never going to leave you while you're a boxer. Right. Or I'm never. He says, she says, are you going to leave me? And he says, never. And the shot is still and it's quiet and it's silhouetted and it's he's half in shadows. And I think this is just a true confession. This is full heart coming out. And and then the next thing that happens is fascinating because he says, that place you were, do they have homemade lemon meringue pie there? Sure. Not the kind with the canned filling crap. Big can, yay size. Says homemade on the label. <laughs> Why does he ask this question at this moment? Um, this is his way of, uh, it feels like this is his way of, um, what do they call that? Uh, misdirection or distraction? no, no, uh, sealing the deal. What do mm. they call it? Yeah, sell you know, a celebratory drink to seal the deal. I, I think, I think there's a lot of things going on here, and I think screenwriting wise, it's really interesting. Is that mm-hmm. I think to some degree, I don't think Clint Eastwood's a person who can stay in the emotion, you know what I mean? He can't yeah. sit there. He just said, Never, I'm never gonna leave you. He basically said, I love you, yeah, and he can't sit there, and so he goes to something that seems like a non sequitur. Hey, let's yeah. get some pie. Yeah. What is a good pie? I really kill. I like lemon meringue pie. Yeah. But then what's really interesting about this is that later on in the film, we're going to the diner that has the real lemon meringue pie. Yeah. And there he says, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Yeah. And then the end of the movie ends there too. And so even though I think on some level this is the distraction from the true emotion, on another level, lemon meringue pie, homemade real lemon meringue pie, is a truth. There's something deep here about home and love and family. Yeah. You know, and we sense much like we sense in a weird way with the daughter that lemon meringue pie is special to him in some way. We don't know. We don't know if his wife made it or what. We never know what happened yeah, with the daughter, yeah, yeah. but it's special. I want you to take the weekend off. It's only Thursday. You're going to argue with me? No better than to do that, boss. Well, good. And with that sort of light moment, we've sealed the deal. Their relationship is now established, spoken, where it's going to be. And I think at that moment, it's time for us to end part one of our exploration of Million Dollar Baby. I knew this was going to be a two-parter. 
Because I just knew watching it, I was like, damn, I have so many thoughts and so many emotions about this thing. Oh, yeah. And the fact is, we would never be doing this without uh, the Warner Brothers Hollywood Most Influential Series, which is going to be on YouTube starting on December September 15th. All you have to do is go to YouTube.com slash Warner Brothers Online, Warner Bros Online, for more information, and you will get to see their exploration of great filmmakers, including Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Frank Darabont, and of course course the great clint eastwood who we're talking about today there's behind the scenes footage interviews all kinds of stuff that's going on there that you haven't had access to before uh and it'll be fun for anybody who is a properly spelled cinephile and (laughs) also also slightly improperly spelled cinephile with us uh this is a, a real treat for you all that you're getting from warner brothers so Please go over there and tell them we sent you. If you can put it anywhere in their comment section of YouTube, tell them you came here, you came there from the cinephiles that we sent you. Absolutely. And of course, we always want to hear what you think. So take a visit to our Facebook page. Just do a search for the cinephiles. I will say spelled properly with a dash (laughs) and an F. And you can also subscribe to the show on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and a whole bunch of other places. In fact, I actually think Amazon is going to have their own podcast section. I think that's getting launched soon and we'll hopefully be there as well. Please, please leave your reviews on iTunes. They're really important to the show. You can leave comments on YouTube, which we always like reading. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can buy or stream Million Dollar Baby or any other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. You can follow the show on, on Twitter at cine underscore files on Instagram at the cinephiles podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris and SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how can they follow you? You can always find me at the Rokazes on Twitter and on Instagram, and you can, uh, of course, go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Rokazes, to see all the stuff we got going on there in the world. A lot of fun uh, stuff going on on the Outlaw Nation, uh, politics, professional wrestling, sports, and, of course, film and television discussions and reviews. So please come and be a part of that over there and have some fun with us. And we will be back next week with part two of Million Dollar Baby on The Cinephiles. <laughs>